Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You could also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. There's a story of a Jewish man around the time of Jesus. He was a Roman citizen with a deep disdain for followers of Christ. In fact, he would leave to persecute the early church. Going door to door, he would drag away Christian men and women and throw them in prison. He would even go as far as to affirm the murder of Stephen, history's first Christian martyr. Traveling, he encountered the very Christ in which he was persecuting. Jesus would graciously and miraculously transform the life of the man that we know as the Apostle Paul. ultimately reveal his gospel directly to Paul, using him to spread it throughout the nations. Paul would go on to take four missionary journeys, personally planting dozens of churches, reaching and influencing hundreds of people for the kingdom of God. In 57 AD, Paul would articulate the gospel given to him by Christ Jesus in a letter to the church in the center of the universe, the Roman Empire. This letter would become the source of revival and awakening for hundreds of thousands of people over the last 20 centuries. Because what Paul knew then still reigns true today that the gospel of Jesus is the gospel for Well, welcome. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. We are honored that you've chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us here at Quad City. I want to welcome all of those who are joining us online from whenever and wherever you are. So grateful to have you with us. And also want to welcome in all of those at our Prescott Valley campus. Uh, so grateful that you are here as well. Um, today, we are jumping back into our series in the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them on. 
Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Now, when we started this, I shared with you a quick outline that we made up of the book of Romans. So I want to go back to it because I shared way back nine months ago that every time we would take a, uh, make a transition in the book, I would share that with you. And today we're making one of those transitions. Book of Romans is the introduction. I simply called it, hey you, because that's Paul introducing himself. He'd never been to Rome, just meeting these people. Chapters one through four was the bad news. Chapter four through eight, the good news. And then for the last couple of months, we've been in chapters nine through 11, which was the hard news. And today we're jumping into which we entitled what to do. Because here's the thing. He gives us the gospel for 11 chapters and just shares with us the good news of Jesus. And now he's going to tell us what to do. What do we do because of this gospel? So that's where we're going today. But as we have to begin by reading our text uh, out loud from the platform this morning. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand where you are. You can look in your booklet. By the way, I forgot to say this. If you don't have April's booklet and you want it, you can raise your hand and the guys will come by and give you one of these. If you haven't picked one of those, I got one right here in the middle. So make sure you raise your hand up and we'll get those to you. Sorry, I forgot that. Uh, Starting in chapter 12, we'll begin chapter or verse one through verse eight. And this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people who are under it today. I pray that through your spirit, you would make application for our life to make us look more like Jesus. In Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. We got a lot of ground to cover today, so we're going to dive right in. Paul begins, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. We need to pause for just a second. We talk about this all the time. That is a connecting word. And it's not just connecting what he's about to say with the last chapter or last paragraph or last few verses. This, therefore, is a big therefore. It is a therefore that is connecting what he is about to say with 
he has said so far in the book of Romans. He is, he's saying, therefore, because of the gospel, because of the good news, and what was the good news? We've talked about it for 11 chapters. The good news is that you are worse than you think. Like you are bad, worse than you ever had. Christ died for you and you've been justified freely by his grace. It's not by your works, it's by his works. And he has given us his spirit. He's adopted us as his sons. We are promised an inheritance and we can rest in the fact that he is for us right now in the presence of the father. And one day we're going to get to go join him there in eternity when he comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And he says, in view of the news, in view of it, this is all God's mercy to us. All of that I just described is God's mercy. So how do we respond to God's mercy. How are we supposed to live because that God is true for us? That's what he's about to answer. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of this mercy, of all of the last 11 chapters of the great gospel of Jesus Christ, what are we supposed to do in view of that? That's the filter we're looking at everything else through. How do we live? We are to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. How do we respond to the mercy of God through the gospel? We offer him our bodies. Not just our belief, not just our morals, not just our words, our time, our affection. We are to offer our bodies, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our mouth, our backs, our legs, our arms. Offer your bodies. Following Jesus is not just something you are to believe. It is something that you are. It's not just an inward decision we make. That inward decision requires outward action. And what is our response? To offer our bodies. Our bodies as what? A living sacrifice. Offer your body as a living no doubt when Paul first wrote this to those people in Rome, this was a much more provocative statement than it was for me saying it out loud to 21st century Arizonans. Because here's the reality. These people understood what a sacrifice was. They knew what it was to raise a cow or a, or a lamb or a goat bring it to the temple, offer it to the priest, watch the priest slit its neck, drain its blood, burn the carcass. They knew what a sacrifice was. My guess is most of you have never done that. We should talk. <laughs> the entire ancient world, the religious system of the ancient world was based on sacrifices. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system was based on the idea that you would take a living being and you would kill it in your place. You would sacrifice it for your sin. You would offer another life for your life. It would take your place. And that sacrifice was the picture of the greater sacrifice that was to come, whose name was Jesus, who would die for all of our sin. 
people understood what it meant to be a sacrifice. So, but what Paul says here is totally different than anything they have ever experienced before. He says, offer a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice only became a sacrifice when And he says, you need to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, Paul says to this church, you're not just to make a sacrifice. You are to be a sacrifice. You're to be a sacrifice. To be a living sacrifice. The sacrifice would actually come through your life, not come through your death. And again, don't miss this. It's not a sacrifice that is taken. It is a sacrifice that is offered. Like most sacrifices got drugged to the temple, kicking and screaming, trying to get away. This is a sacrifice you willingly offer. But this is no longer some offering up of somebody else's life or something else's life. We're to offer up our own life. Just as Jesus did. As crazy as it sounds, I think, I, I think there are a lot of people, I think most Christians would actually rather die for Jesus than to live for him. I think most Christians would actually rather offer up their self as, as a sacrifice, a sacrifice of life. Why? Because To die for Jesus, you only have to decide that once. To live for Jesus, to offer a living sacrifice, you have to make that decision 10,000 times over. Over and over and over. And it's hard. Most of us don't actually do it. Just don't think we do. In fact, let me ask this question of you. What actions in your life right now could be described as a living sacrifice? Uh, don't blow past this. Don't assume I'm talking to your neighbor. I'm not, like literally, what are you offering up in your life that is the picture of a sacrifice to the Lord? Where you are actually doing things or not doing things simply because you love Jesus more than you love yourself. A few weeks ago, I was in a room with about 75 people in our church. And we were, we were talking about spiritually significant moments that we had experienced as being a part of Quad City. And there was one story that got retold at least four times. And, and the story that got retold was the call that they had heard from this church about joining in to the foster and adoption ministry. And in that room of 75 people, as I pop up four times at least, I I started counting and there were 11 children that had been impacted by these families who had been taken out of foster care and adopted into families in our church. 11 children just in this group. Now there's a lot more people in our church who have adopted and fostered and there's have fostered because of other values that they grew up with or another church. That, but these 11 kids had been adopted simply because this church said, hey, you ought to do that. And 11 lives were changed. And honestly, I can't think of any action that better exemplifies 
means to be a living sacrifice than joining into foster and adoption. I, I don't know of any. Because being a foster parent requires you to offer up your life. You have to offer it up. It is a sacrifice of your time. It's a sacrifice of your comfort. Sacrifice oftentimes your family's comfort. You got to sacrifice the control over your schedule, your reputation. People will judge you in the, mar- in the supermarket. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. It will cost you emotionally and spiritually. It impacts your marriage. It'll impact your bio kids. And in some instances, it actually impacts your own safety and security. You got to lay that down. There are great and glorious moments of God honoring grace and redemption and love and joy. And those are amazing stories that we get to be. There is no doubt that for a large majority of families who walk this path, it is the epitome of a living sacrifice. You got to do it every day. And frankly, we need more of you to answer that call. We need more of you to lay down your life in this way. Kids today in Arizona who are still in foster care. <clears throat> and there are 14,000 kids in foster care, but there are only 3,000 foster homes for those kids to be placed in today. 14,000 kids, 3,000 homes. That's it. 3,000 kids who right now are just waiting to be adopted. They don't, they don't need a foster home, they need a family. We're going to talk about what it means to know God's will in just a moment, but you can know this for sure. Stepping out and fostering and adopting these kids, like literally you don't have to pray about it. You know how I know? Because he told us. Pure religion is this, taking care of orphans and widows. Like you don't have to pray. You don't have to ask him. He already wrote it down. When it means, when it talks about being a living sacrifice, I cannot, I cannot, and I've tried, I cannot come up with a better example of what that looks like than this. We're asking you to join into that ministry. April 27th, we're going to talk about what it looks like for you to find your place in foster care. And maybe it doesn't mean you're bringing a kid into your home. Maybe that isn't a viable option, but that doesn't mean you don't have a part to play. And so April 27th from 6th to 8th, you can scan this QR code. You can find it on our website. You can go to Connection Central. We want to get you plugged in. Come and check out what do through you to impact these, these kids in our state. Child care is provided. There's no excuse. We want you to be a part of that. We need you to be a part of that. If you're looking for a way, to say, yeah, yeah, I don't have anything in my life right now that really looks like a living sacrifice, then here it is. Here it is. Let's keep going. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here's what we all know. You and I are being conformed to the darkness of this world. We are. Like, like Plato in a mold, we are being pushed to look more like the culture that we find ourselves in. Every day, we are being molded into their values, into the ideals and dogmas and doctrines and beliefs and convictions of this world. We are being inundated 
movies we watch, the news we consume, the social media feeds that we scroll, the books we read, the videos we watch, and the people we hang around. And as much as we would like to convince ourselves, well, it, I, can, I can participate in those things and it not actually change me, you're fooling yourself. It changes us. It always changes us. We are, even as Christians, we are being conformed to think like the world. There are so many Christians who've been conformed to believe that things that God says are wrong aren't actually wrong. We have, we have people who have been what Scripture teaches, I doesn't actually mean that. We've been conformed to believe that, is, that God's expectations and His commands are optional, or at least debatable. Here's the reality. Enough to admit it. The views of most Christians on things like sex and dating, marriage and divorce, parenting and entertainment, finances and comfort, generosity and security. In all of those areas, most of us, most of us look way more like the world than we do the Word. We just do. And I'm including me in this. We have been conformed to the pattern of this world. And in so many areas, of our thinking is actually pretty much in line with the rest of our cultures. We're not that different. Which tells us we've been conformed to the pattern of this world. Our thinking is, has changed. We're being, we're being every single day. And Paul, who's writing to these first-generation believers, whose entire th- worldview, they grew up thinking one way, and they had these pagan religions that shaped their lives. And now they're like, because somebody came and told them, a dead guy came back to life and it changed their worldview. And Paul says, now you have to transform your mind. You got to renew your mind so that your life will be transformed to this new reality. Your life different because of this amazing gospel that a dead man came back to life. Here's what I know. Most of us say we want to know God's will. We'll actually even pray it. God, tell me your will. Show me your will. We'll ask other people, do you think this is God's will? Let me tell a... You can't know the will of God without knowing the word of God. You just can't. Like you're praying for God's will and you're asking people for God's will. Here's the truth. You can't know God's will unless you know God's word. If you don't know his word, then what's going to happen? assume that things that are God's will aren't his will. And we will assume that things that are God's will aren't his will. Things that are his will aren't his will. Because we get conformed to the pattern of this world. I can promise you, the more it's transformed, renewed, the more you will recognize that God's way is right. Let me end by in this section by saying this. Wherever it is that you find yourself bumping up against God's word, where you are questioning God's 
wisdom or his word. Wherever it is you find yourself fighting against the word of God, you can guarantee in that moment that's a place where your mind has been conformed to the world, not the word. When you're fighting against God's word, mind is still conformed to the world. Now, why is it so important for us to change the way that we think? Here we go. For by God's grace given to me, I say every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of with sober judgment in accordance with the faith, faith God has distributed to each of you. So don't think too highly of yourselves, people. Here's what we do know. Most people think highly of themselves. The question is, think of ourselves. He says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but he doesn't tell us how high we ought to think of ourselves. But again, we know most people think more highly than they should. And I'm, and I'm like, well, of course they do. Like, why wouldn't we? Think about this for a second. Created mechanisms in the world where billions of people are exposed to our thoughts. Like we can share our opinions with billions of people on the planet. How crazy is that? Like a 12-year-old in Paulden ability today to share their opinions with more people in one day than the greatest king in the entire world did a hundred years ago. What do you think that's going to do to a person's psyche? Like it affects us. It's going to make perception of how great we are. Of course it is. Paul says, Think of yourself with sober judgment, which is an interesting word. What's the opposite of sober? It's not a trick question. (laughs) And don't act like it's drunk. It's intoxicated. That's the opposite. Don't, he says, think of yourself with sober judgment. Instead of being intoxicated with yourself, drunk on yourself, have a sober judgment of yourself. Did you know the studies show every time that you post something on the internet and there's likes and reposts and tweets and comments, did you know every time that happens and you see it, there's a little drop of dopamine that hits your brain? Dopamine is the pleasure chemical in your brain. And every time somebody clicks it and a little drop hits your brain, it's the same chemical reaction that happens when you have sex or gamble or drink alcohol or, yes, even do drugs. That's why it's addicting. We get drunk on ourselves. We put ourselves out there, and when people click it, we get intoxicated by it. And it makes us think of ourselves highly. Paul says, don't do it. Just get drunk on power, and we use our position or our wit or our influence or wealth or fame or success to prop ourselves up above, above other people. Paul says, don't do that. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And even though he doesn't give us a clearly defined limit to how we think of ourselves, he does give us a gauge to use. Think of yourself in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to you. In in other words, the limit of how highly you think of yourself is capped with the faith that God has given. 
God has distributed to you. In other words, your greatness is not your greatness. It's capped by God. He distributed your greatness. So no matter how great you are, it's not actually you. It's God. It's God. Which means that you don't have the right to look down on anyone around you because they aren't where you are or they don't have what you don't have. And we see no better example of this than in Jesus himself. If anyone had the right to think highly of themselves, it would have been Jesus. Like he came the room and said, don't you know who I am? I'm God. And that wouldn't have been bragging. That would have been true. But he didn't do that. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You and I are to have the same mindset that Jesus had. And what was his mindset? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, or equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Paul says, Jesus is our example for how highly we are to think of ourselves. And how highly did Jesus think of himself? Think about the, the reality of Jesus being God, creating everything. How far did Jesus lower himself? He lowered himself to the lowest of all servants, the washer of feet. Now, the eternal one. And he lowered himself to the washer of feet. He was the highest of the high. I don't care how great you think you are, you aren't that great. And the gap between the reality of who he was and the position he took as the lowest of servants is greater than any gap you and I take. Every time I read this text, I'm struck by these words. He made himself nothing. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords made himself nothing. And every time I read it, I ask myself, if Jesus made himself nothing, why am I so consumed with making myself something? Like we even tell each other, go make something of yourself. Jesus said, no, 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 go make nothing of yourself. Take the If Jesus made himself nothing, why are we so consumed with trying to make something of ourselves? Let me wrap up this little section with this. If you aren't growing in humility, you aren't growing in the likeness of Christ. That's just true. Jesus went from the highest of high to the lowest of lows, and he invites us to do the same. And if you aren't growing in your humility, you are not growing to be like Jesus. And why is it important for us to have a right, humble view of ourselves? Here's why. For just us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. This is why we have to have a right view of ourselves. Because we are all part of one body. 
Just as the hands don't think they're greater than your feet, just because your knees don't think they're greater than your elbows, in the same way that your eyes don't look down on your nose. Come on, that's funny, because they do. <laughs> in Christ, we are one body. We're one body. And every part plays a part. Parts get more airtime in pictures as they should. Okay? There are certain parts you should stop photographing. And each of the parts belongs to all of the other parts. In other words, we are better together, right? It's only when each its part that we will ever be as effective as we should be. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We all have different gifts given to us by God. If you are part of the body of Christ, if you are a spirit-filled believer, you have been gifted by God Almighty. For, not for you, for the rest of the body. You've been given a gift that is to be used to bless the rest of the body of Christ. What Paul is saying here is that you need to use your gifts. When you don't, the entire body of Christ suffers like a hand that doesn't work. Sure, we can survive, but we'll never be as good because you're not doing your part. And then he gives us some examples of these gifts. If your gift is when you hear prophesying, think about declaring the word of the Lord. That's what prophesying means. You just share the word of the Lord. If, that, if you have a gift of prophesying, of declaring God's word into people's life, he says, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. Now, don't be going out there trying to act like you know things that you don't know. That's not helpful. But as God gives you faith to to speak truth over people, then leverage that gift. We need that in the body of Christ. If it is serving, then serve. If it's serving, then serve, even if you don't want Because it's not about if you want to, you have been given a gift from the Lord to serve, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. Then teach. Now, just so you know, I don't believe that when Paul wrote this, he had stage lights and microphones was talking about teaching. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Like, you don't have to have a classroom or a crowd to exercise the gift of teaching. If you're gifted to teach, then use that gift in whatever sphere of influence that God has given you. It may be one-on-one. -on -one. It may be in a small group. It may be with a, two people at your work. It may be your children. But whatever he has gifted you, whatever sphere of influence he's gifted you, leverage the gift in the place that he's given you to leverage it. If you're waiting for a microphone or a crowd, then you're... Remember the text that Jesus said? Remember the promise that he made? If you are faithful in little, he will give you much. Why would he give you more influence if you're not leveraging the gift in the place that he's already given you? Why would he give you more influence if you're not leveraging the gift that he's given you? 
place of small influence. If it is encouraging, if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. I don't have this gift. If you've sat through three sermons, right? I don't have this gift, but I'm grateful for those of you who do because I need this gift. I need this gift. I'm grateful for those who have it and you need to leverage it in a world that is overrun with constant negativity. More people exercising the gift of encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. Like this, for some of you, this is your gift. You have been gifted for generosity. Like God has given you resources, not for you to keep, not for you to spend, not for you to save, but for you to give. Some of you have the ability to take $100 and turn it into $1,000. Like that, it just comes naturally to do to you. You can do that. But again, it's not just more stuff, go on more trips and be more comfortable. That's not why he's doing that. It's so that you can give generously to the kingdom of God. He's gifted you that way. So if he's gifted you that way, then leverage that gift and give generously. You to use that gift. If it is to lead, do it gen- uh, diligently. And again, some of you have the spiritual gift of leadership. And here's the the biggest issue. You leverage that gift of leadership for 35 years in your business life when somebody paid you, and as soon as you retired, you put that leadership gift on the shelf. You leverage the spiritual gift of leadership when someone would pay you to build their business, but you put it on the shelf and you don't use it to actually build the kingdom of God. Like, that's a problem. Like, you've been given the ability to lead, but you've shelved it because you know leading people is hard. And if if nobody's going to pay me to do it, then I ain't going to do it. And that's an issue. Sign up and you serve, but you serve in only places where you don't actually have to lead anybody. You can just show up and do a task and go home and pat yourself on the back. And that's fine for a season, but for some of you, that season's gone way too long. You need to leverage the leadership gifts that helped you build five years. You need to leverage it to build the kingdom for the next 20. If it's to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Do it cheerfully. Now, here's the issue with this showing mercy. Some of you, you have this gift and its ability to see and love people and hard circumstances. That's the gift of mercy. You see people who are hurting and abused and used, and you have this tender heart to show mercy to those people. Now, the downside of this gift is those people will often use and abuse you. They will use and abuse you. Showing mercy is often a thankless task. You get taken advantage of over and over again. But at the end of the day, You just need to remember that people did the same thing to Jesus. They did the same thing to Jesus. 
We need you to use this gift of mercy. Even when people don't say thank you. Because you're being like Jesus. I want to end where we started today. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of the grace that you have received, the gospel of Jesus, all of it, in view of that, with that being your filter, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You standing here singing songs for 12 minutes on a Sunday is not your true and proper worship. You leveraging your life every day as a, as a living sacrifice that just dies over and over and over and over. That is your true and proper worship. And if you have the right view of God's the day, you'll say whatever that looks like, it's worth it. Because the gospel of Jesus is so great. So, what, what does living sacrifice look like for you? Go do that this week. Pray. Father, we are grateful that the gospel is so good and so glorious that it is worth every piece of hurt and pain, all of our serving and giving. It's worth it all because it is so merciful for us. That you would use us, leverage our lives to be living sacrifices that we die 10,000 times to make your kingdom known in this world. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.